episode 140 above ground podcast with special guest phd chelsea wakefield disclaimer the host of this podcast timothy patrick and will foley are by no means medical professionals however having lived experience with mental illness themselves they have gained useful perspectives on common mental health issues that some of us struggle to overcome on a daily basis by sharing their stories they hope to create connection by creating connection they hope to help you find your purpose and through purpose we can all begin to build the foundation for positive mental health. This is Above Ground Podcast. Are you ready to lace up your boots, throw up your horns, and jump into the pit? Then let's stomp the stigmas of mental illness. It's time for Above Ground Podcast. Now, Will Foley and Timothy Patrick. Hey, what is up, everyone? Welcome to Above Ground Podcast. Above ground podcast because you can't serve below. I'm joined no, this can't. morning. No, you cannot. TPP. Are you down with TPP? Yeah, you know me. Ah, there we go. Timmy. Timmy, we got a good one this morning, man. How are you this morning? First of all, I'm good. I was a little slow getting up for myself. I normally I'm an early riser, but um, I don't know if it's the weather. I don't know. I was just kind of getting a little, a little sluggish. I allowed myself to be sluggish and here I am. Looking yeah. forward to this today. I'm glad you're here with us, man. I'm glad. And I've been sluggish myself. So I think we actually have a perfect guest for both of us being sluggish because some things come up in the in the in the off air talk about winters and, and that stuff. So maybe we'll get into some of that. But we are joined this morning by our guest, Chelsea Wakefield. And Ch- Chelsea Wakefield is a Ph.D. clinical uh, licensed clinical social worker. She is an author of three books. Uh, she also is the co-host of the podcast, Love in the Time of COVID. Um, I, we're super stoked to get into this with her, so I'm not going to waste a lot of time. Chelsea, thank you very much for joining both of us this morning. How are you? Tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and why you do it. Well, I'm very happy to be here. When I got up this morning, the rain was coming down around our house. <laughs> so it's a chilly, rainy morning here Uh, I'm at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in the Department of Psychiatry, where I teach and where I also uh, am the the, um, departmental head of the Couples Center. So um, I do do a half-time couple therapy practice, and then I, I teach and I write, and I do community workshops, and I really just try to help people understand the importance of good relationships to our mental health and the importance of mental health to our relationships. Love it. That's awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, She is the author of three books, uh, Negotiating the Inner Peace Treaty, In Search of Aphrodite, Women, Archetypes, and Sex Therapy. Those are the first two books. And now your new book, The Labyrinth of Love. So we're going to get into some of this stuff. Um, I'm super happy that you could join us this morning. It's been a little bit rainy and cold up here also in upstate New York. We're getting that kind of weather. Um, I, Tim, where do you want to start with this? Cause there was a lot of stuff. There was a lot of places that we could start, man. I know. And I, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me because I've, <laughs> I, I want, I want to talk about all of it. I, um, I, I don't know. I don't want to be selfish, but I, I, I want to talk. I want to, I kind of want to talk about the relationship side of it because I don't think we've, you know, we we've, we've, 
We, we don't. We've talked and, like interpersonal stuff, but nothing like I'm sure in depth as Chelsea can can lead us. No, and I think it's really good that you said that because there's a relationship that you and I have, and then there's our relationships outside of what we have, and and they all affect all they all affect one another. So and the relationship within ourselves, without that we have with ourselves, which is real important. Absolutely, you know? and that and that can probably obviously that might be the foundation where it could affect all the others. I personally think that is the foundation, but maybe Chelsea can direct us yes. in a different way to think something different. But I would agree that your relationship with yourself and how aware you are of what's going on inside of you and who you are and what you bring into a relationship is really important. Um, this, I always talk about how relationships have two dimensions. We start with the, the personal work that we do and then how we show up in a relationship has a huge impact on the interpersonal. And while there's interpersonal skills like communication, the place from which we communicate inside has a big impact on how we communicate. So Tim, we were talking a little bit about the inner self system. And in my first book, Negotiating the Inner Peace Treaty, I talk about the inner cast of characters. I like to name these sub-personalities inside of us and they are various ages and they have various agendas and various needs and various emotional states. And the emotional state that we're in determines a lot about how we communicate with our partners. So when two people can actually start to have some insight into this and to kind of lift above the dynamics so that the dynamic that they're in becomes the enemy rather than the person. And I want to say that again, because I say it so often to couples, you two are stuck in a negative dynamic and the dynamic is the enemy, not the partner. So if the two of you can team up and really deconstruct what's going on between the two of you, like what's going on with me in reaction to you and, and vice versa. And then the two of us decide, sometimes I call it an exit ramp off the conflict highway. How do we construct these exit ramps off the conflict highway? What is the conflict really about? So in my book, I've got this chapter about, um, it's not about the dishwasher because it's something that couples fight about, like how to, how to load the dishwasher the right way. Um, I have a, a colleague who's also a marriage and family therapist. And she talked about how, when she got married to her husband, she never expected that they would argue over laundry soap and the cost of laundry soap. Um, so we get into these arguments, these big arguments about little things. And we say, oh, it's so silly. Why are we arguing about it? But it's really about what it means, you know, whether or not we're going to give up control or whether or not the other person is overpowering us or the history behind the dishwasher and the history behind the laundry soap or whether the toilet paper winds this way or that way. And all these things that couples tend to argue about. So uh, there's a personal and an interpersonal dimension to relationships and our when we bring uh, whatever it is our health into the relationship and right now in the midst of COVID there's so much anxiety and particularly as people begin to winter they're going to start experiencing some cabin fever and that's going to stir some things up in relationships so we really have to figure out what can we do internally to work with ourselves and keep our calm core in place so that we can show up in a positive way with our relationships and actually together make our way through this. Wow. That could put people in a really vulnerable spot. Cause I got to tell you, if, for me, I've, I'm very comfortable knowing what, knowing what I've brought to the table. Like I, I know my faults in and out for sure. And I'm curious to know how does someone 
how does someone even start that conversation with themselves? Because a lot of people just aren't willing to look at their own mirrors. Well, I think that you have to have a why. I think the why in life is incredibly important. And you guys talk a lot about purpose. So the why is like, what do you really want to create in this experience of being in a relationship? What do you want to experience and express? And if you have a compelling vision for what you really want to experience in a relationship, and a lot of people don't believe that anything really amazing is possible because they don't, a lot of people don't have role models. Over the course of my life, I've been really fortunate, probably because I'm in the field, to have studied with couples who demonstrate amazing relationships. And I've thought to myself, wow, I would like something like that. So I'm about 32 years into my current relationship, and I can absolutely say we've had about five marriages. And each one of them has been just different. You know, I've been married to a different person. He's been married to a different person. And this last marriage was, I will say that when I turned 50, I finally grew up. And I, I, brought, I just started to really work on my own projections and my own demands that my husband be the way I, I wanted him to be. And I started to invite him into a different kind of relationship. And as I did that, he responded differently. And in the light of my increased love, acceptance and mercy and compassion for just him being a human and me being a human, which is part of what you're talking about, Will, is like, you know, we all have our areas where we struggle. And if we demand that our partners be perfect human beings, we're never going to reach the possibility of what that relationship can be. Part of uh, the book, The Labyrinth of Love, I talk about the six love capacities. And so we're actually in the topic of the fifth love capacity, which is compassion. We have to have compassion for ourselves and compassion for another person so that we don't demand that they be perfect all the time. But that, you know, it's like when the boat starts rocking, we don't start, you know, fighting with the rocking of the boat and capsize the boat that we can sort of find our own center when our partner is spinning. And then, you know, again, wait, center, be merciful and compassionate and not expect that people be who we want them to be. People are who they are. And there's no perfect human being. So we, we recovery skills are actually really important in relationships. And while we can bring the best of what we can be, we need to make an allowance for our partner's particularities. My husband has a little streak of obsessive compulsive disorder. And so I've had to work with that over the years. And just to really do some things for him that are just out of my love and caring for him that I happen to think are ridiculous, but they help him so much. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. On our kitchen counter, we have two sponges. One sponge is for the dishes and the other is for the counters. And he believes in his own way of organizing things that these sponges are different. Now I can guarantee you that if I sent them to a lab, they would have similar amounts of bacteria. Um, and I can go on about this, but you know- I like your husband already. I like him already. I'm with him. You know what? I, I, I have those 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 little uh, gremlins, same, as what, same thing. I, I and, have those little things. And here's the thing. It's not that big a deal for me to have two little sponge holders in front of, this, of the sink. It's an allowance that I've made for him because it just it, he makes him so happy. 
So this, this spirit of generosity and reciprocity where we do some giving and taking, because he does the same thing with me. He's actually quite wonderful with me when I get into certain states. Um, he understands me and we work with each other in our inner self system. So again, in terms of the inner self system, um, sometimes he will peek his head into my office door and I'll take one look at his face and I can tell he's in a particular self. And I know that I don't do well with that self. So what I say to him is go away and bring back somebody else. I'm not talking to you. And then sometimes when I'm not in my best self, he will look at me and he'll say, is anybody else in there? And I know that I'm probably in my lecturing critical mother self and I need to shift. Um, other times, I, he just knows how to get me out of a bad mood. I know that if he's in a difficult mood, if I just grab him in the kitchen and start dancing with him, it immediately shifts his mood. So we've, we've learned things about each other, how to help each other, then rather than to be critical of each other. And that's what has really improved our relationship. Wow, that's awesome. There's so much there, but I, I want it sounds like there's there's an element of, of ego of, you know, each individual, our ego, like you said, you know, we, we kind of see things how maybe we want them to be, or we see them, we basically see things as, you know, as we see them and not as they are, yeah. you know? Um, but two, two kind of quick things is I want to, I want to go over those. Was it five steps that you said, or the six? Well, steps? there's is six that... love capacities. Or love, okay. I kind of want to, if, if we can kind of touch on that, um, and then uh, also the, you, you know, you were talking the relationship with your husband and I'm sure um, being together for a long period of time is a, is a good variable to that, but how does, how, how can couples kind of get to work towards that? You know, is it, is it being more vulnerable with each other? Is it more of a communication thing? What, what are some of the things that we can yeah. do to. Well, yeah, Tim, hit, Tim hit it perfectly because I was going to ask you that. Like, how would you know if you're staring at your partner that you guys weren't where you were supposed to be? That yeah, let's let's hit that. Well, probably you're in disillusionment. You're in in my roadmap of a relationship, which is in in the labyrinth of love. Uh, we start with an enchantment. Usually, we're usually sort of head over heels in love, and we got a lot of dopamine pumping in our brains and a lot of projection going on, a lot of expectation, and we're enchanted. It's a wonderful state of being, but a lot of people end up, you know, moving in together or getting married during that enchantment. And then they start to bump into differences. And when they bump into differences, they hit the disenchantment phase. So you'll know you're ready for something when you hit disenchantment, because now actually the projections are crumbling. This, you know, this imagined person that you put out there, that it's crumbling and falling to the ground and you're starting to see the whole person in all their, uh, you know, difficulties and warts and, and things that really grate you the wrong way that you didn't necessarily see when you were enchanted. So that's the beginning of the real relationship. And most people don't understand that that disillusionment, that disenchantment is normal. It's a normal phase in the relationship. And it's actually where we have this amazing opportunity to begin that process of personal and interpersonal growth. And so let me talk a little bit about the six love capacities, because the first one is commitment. Now, everybody understands that, you know, you're supposed to commit to a person, but also you've got to commit to a process. So there's three P's in the commitment. There's person, process, 
and presence. Because if you stop being engaged, if you stop being present to the person and you kind of check out and go, you know, you become on parallel tracks like roommates, you're not going to grow the relationship. You've got to be engaged. You've got to be present. And that takes a lot of the second love capacity, which is courage. It takes a lot of courage to face oneself, really to look at your shadow and light and to face your partner in all their shadow and light. It takes courage and it takes courage to say, okay, we're going to stay in this journey together. We're going to make something of this. We're going to co-create something that we both want to be in. And so the next place, the next love capacity is curiosity. Curiosity has to do with inquiry. It's sort of like, you know, when I'm upset with my husband or I'm getting triggered by something he's doing, begin within, begin within. The first place I go is what is going on with me about that? What is going on with me? What's it, what nerve is it, is it touching in me? What's the history of that nerve? What's my expectation? What's my egoic demand? What's going on with me? And then after I figure out what's going on with me, I can come back. I've learned something about me. It's usually shifted my state. So I'm no longer as frustrated or sad or whatever. And then I can come back and say, you know what? I figured something out about me. You know, it's kind of like the one time that we were in the, the, uh, in Best Buy and uh, I needed a new laptop. And my husband kept pushing this particular laptop at me because it was the best laptop. He wanted me to have the best laptop, but I wanted the light laptop laptop so that I could travel on a plane with it. So we got in this big argument about which laptop and I got so upset. I walked out to the car and I thought to myself, I want a divorce. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I went home, he came out and he said, what's wrong with you? And I said, I have no idea. Just let me kind of reflect on it and I'll report back to you in the morning. So in the morning, I figured out an incident with my father where I had wanted a particular coat in junior high. And he had gone out and bought me the best coat instead, not the coat I wanted. It was like this big fluffy Sunday coat and I would never wear it to school because it would be embarrassing, but I wanted this like really cool little pea coat. And, you know, so it, I was still upset about that in the nesting dolls of my life and that younger self, it was like, I don't want the best thing pushed at me. I want the thing I want, even if it's more ordinary, I, I just want the ordinary thing. So um, I, I realized that I was really carrying forward an experience from the past into the present. And I said to him, I am so appreciative of you that you always want me to have the best thing. But I also want you to listen to me that sometimes I have other criteria. In this case, I wanted something that only weighed, you know, six pounds or if, I can't remember how much it weighed, but I just want you to listen to me about what's most important. And thank you for always wanting me to have the best thing. I really appreciate that about you. So I got clear, he got appreciated and we bought the lighter laptop. So that's just an example of like, begin within, like what's going on with me about this and how do I need to show up differently and be appreciative of my partner's intentions rather than what they're pushing at me? Because we get really confused by intention and impact. Sometimes we intend well, but it has a negative impact and we need to just, again, be curious, that love capacity, curiosity, what's going on with me? What's going on with you? What was the intention? What do we want to create here? So then there's communication which is talking in a way that's not critical, not blaming, not shaming, just really being responsible once we've done our inner work for showing up and talking to someone kindly, 
you know, not, not nicely. Cause I don't believe in nice, but I leave in, I believe in kind nice is sort of ingenuous, ingenuous, you know, we're not saying things that are not nice, but kind means we can speak difficult things with kindness. You know, we can say things like I have a really difficult time when you get really down the rabbit hole with watching news or something like that, because it takes you into a place that it's hard for me to relate to you. Or I have a really difficult time when you leave wet towels on the bed and I'm always picking them up and putting them back into the bathroom. And I feel like you're turning me into, into your mother, but that's my thing. That's what I'm doing. But could you try to be more mindful about that? We, we need to speak kindly. Um, and we need to realize that our partners have raw spots, our partners have sensitivity, our partners have history. And again, to move into uh, the next love capacity, which is compassion. So if I know that my husband has a particular sensitivity, when I say particular things to him at particular times, if I can be more responsible in the relationship, I can pick a better time. Like when we were first married and I used to say to him, cause I, I like to bookmark things. I want to set aside, set aside a time to talk to you. He likes to talk about things right away. So I used to say to him, think he would be heading off to work. And I'd say, Tom, I really want to talk to you about, you know, it's like what's going on with little Tommy, our, our son um, and something that happened with you and him. And then he would get all of, you know, he'd start to ruminate about it and obsess about it. And so I learned to table those requests till a time when we could set aside time to kind of check in with each other and talk about things rather than send them out the door. Cause he was like, no, that if it's important to you, we need to talk about it right now, but I can't talk about it right now. I've got to get to work. So you learn about your partner and you know, being compassionate and be, and sensitive to their particularities is important. And then the last thing is co-creativity creating the relationship you want to be in, creating that compelling vision. Like, how do I want to show up in this relationship? Who do I want to be in this relationship? What do we want to experience and express? Do we really want to be relating to each other this way? Or do we want to relate to each other differently? And if so, how can you and I work together to, to show up differently? What do you need from me? What do I need from you? How can we find exit ramps off the conflict highway and begin to experience more joy and connection? So commitment, courage, curiosity, communication, compassion, and creativity. Those are the six love capacities. On the, and when you start to think about those and develop those personally, you are going to show up differently in the relationship. And then you are on your way to an amazing relationship. Wow. Those are fantastic. I got to ask though, we were, I think you were in curiosity when you were talking about the um, incident at Best Buy with your husband. I, I'm, I'm curious to know if there's something, if there's a word for that, like when you kind of, um, you know, you went back to the car and you were able to kind of, uh, you know, maybe baseline yourself or, or pause and, and connect the dots back to, to why that, you know, that feeling or, you know, came back. Is there, is there, is there like a word? Yeah, or absolutely. Word? So this is what I do. And again, this is outlined in the book. What I tell people to do is to follow the sensation, to get into their body and figure out what am I experiencing in my body right now? And where have I felt this way before? What am I, what's the sensation I'm experiencing in my body? And where have I felt like this before? Um, so 
I'm curious about that. Yeah. Because what happens to what happens to people who have no idea what you're talking about? Because there are a lot of people out there who who think they they can get into their body that have no idea. Like I've learned this about myself, too, because I I do Qigong and I've like done like I'm working on energy work and learning about energy work. And I'm and I've realized that everybody stores everything in their body, regardless of whether we recognize that or not. And I'm curious to know how is somebody who is totally out of touch with themselves going to even recognize that in the throes of 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 a of a co you know communication problem, like especially in the middle of a store. So that's a very good point because the first thing to do is to actually know what you just said. And that is that, as Basil Vanderkolt said, the body keeps the score. We, everything we've ever experienced, it's actually not really stored in our body. It's actually stored in our neural networks. So we develop these, these clusters. I like to call it a file cabinet in the head. So it's like we have these clusters of neural network that get developed over time. And then when we, when we have a similar experience to something we've experienced in the past, it lights up that area of the brain. So it opens a little file cabinet and then down into our bodies, download the neurochemicals. I'm getting real scientific here. The neurochemicals download into our body like adrenaline and cortisol. And then it opens up the pathway of those memories. So memories are actually state dependent. And our They're like records in your jukebox, then they're like those records in your limbic jukebox that I call it that just drop because you've those grooves are so ingrained that they can't you can't skip the needle over. them. It's such a great metaphor, such a great metaphor, because it is just like that. And so once that record drops, you're going to play the record. So then we're in a story and we are convinced of our stories, the story that we're in. We think it's true. And we, we look through the lens, that's what you were saying earlier, Tim, we look through the lens of the story we're in. Who am I in this story? Who are you in this story? How does this story go? Where does it end? You know, all of that. And people don't realize that they're living in a story that is actually a creation of their neural networks and their past histories and their biology. Our biology contributes. And so the learning that just even the realization of um, it's, it's like uh, Brene Brown has this phrase, she says, the story I'm telling myself, which is a great way of opening a conversation with your partner. The story I'm telling myself about what's happening between us is that <laughs> you're an idiot and our relationship is doomed. <laughs> this will never change. <laughs> Sometimes we don't even say idiot. We say other things. So Anyway, and so sometimes when people are talking about their feelings, it's like I encourage people to talk about sometimes how are you feeling? They'll say, well, I I feel that you're an asshole. (laughs) So it's actually not a feeling. It's a thought. So excellent. Yes, that's excellent. It's it gets very confusing. So when I'm talking about getting into let me give you an example. So, okay, so we ordered some new file cabinets uh, from a company that, that had to be assembled. Right. My father, who frustrated me so much with the coat, was actually extremely handy. He could fix anything. He could lay tile in the bathroom. He could put in a sprinkler system. He could build a retaining wall. He could do carpentry. He, he built me a desk one time for Christmas. He was amazing in terms of how handy he was. And I loved that about him. 
And he used to take me out into his workshop and I was his little sidekick. I used to hand him hammers and, you know, we would run to the hardware store and we, we, it was just a really special time with my dad. So I have all this positive memory around guys who can fix things. So when I got married to my husband, one of the first things I discovered is that he was not handy. I just assumed all guys could fix things. I, that was an assumption and an expectation. He's not a fixed guy. You know, and he would he'd get so frustrated when he's trying to do stuff. And sometimes I'll say to him, please don't do that, because I know if you do that, we're going to have to call the plumber. <laughs> so he keeps trying um, and he keeps comparing himself to the archetypal Ron Stickney, who was our handy guy at our previous house, who would come in every six months and I'd have a list and Ron would come in and just kind of like take care of it all. And Tom was I always knew that Ron would look at Tom and think, oh these corporate guys so anyway so he sometimes he shows up and he says oh Ron Stickney would be impressed so we have this little thing around Ron Stickney Stickney but anyway so we were trying to build these file cabinets we were having a terrible time and Tom was getting very frustrated there were two of them and on the second file cabinet he said I think we need the handy guy to come and build that one so I I get really frustrated with him sometimes around this and this time I said to myself What's going on with me about that? And so I did some begin within work and I, I went and I located that I had this tension and this heaviness in my chest. And so I, 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 when I did a body scan and I located that sensation in my chest and I thought to myself, hmm, I know what that is. That's grief. That's what grief feels like for me. That's not anger or frustration. That's grief. So I just kind of stayed with the sensation and I emptied my mind of the story that I was telling myself. And I started to just kind of float back into these memories of my father and how with my dad, we had all this fun building stuff, fixing stuff, doing stuff together, going to the hardware store. Um, and I said, oh my gosh, I miss my daddy. I missed my pre-adolescent daddy and how I was his little sidekick and, and those times we had together because that was such a great time with my father before I hit adolescence because when I hit adolescence, my dad lost his little girl and I started to become an independent person and then we had all sorts of trouble, all sorts of trouble. But when I was 10 and 11, oh my gosh, my wonderful daddy. And so I was, I just thought, oh, that's what this is. It's a memory of those beautiful times before what stands out in my memory is all the struggle that we had after I hit adolescence. But there was that really idyllic time. And I thought, oh, that's what this is. This is missing my pre-adolescent daddy. And so it gave me a different context for the frustration that I feel with Tom, which is really more grief than it is frustration. And I've noticed ever since that time, I've just had more compassion and more acceptance for all the incredibly wonderful ways that my husband shows up in their relationship, which are many, and that this has never been a strength of his. And it's okay. He doesn't have to be everything. He doesn't have to be everything. So that's an example of like tracking the body and it's something that you have to develop. But if you just begin with the idea of begin within, begin within, let's look inside of me and find out what's this sensation I'm, I'm feeling and then go down the time track and don't ask yourself to remember things. Just be with the sensation and a memory will bubble up and then just kind of explore that memory. What's the memory? 
what's it showing me? What's it telling me? What do I miss? What did I get that I didn't want? What I did, what didn't I want that I got? What did I get that I no longer have? What's in this memory? I'm curious to, I'm curious to know why you went automatically to grief. And I think, I, I think that there's probably some misconceptions of what grief is and, and how we hold on to it. Is it grieving for a time past? Is it grieving for something that you haven't got? I mean, maybe I'm kind of answering my own question, I suppose, as I, as I unpack it, but I am curious to know why you went to grief. I, it was a big surprise for me because I thought I was angry. But, you know, what's interesting about anger is anger is actually a secondary emotion. It's a secondary emotion. And underneath the anger is often sadness or fear. And so I wasn't saying, oh, I'm angry. I'm going to go look for what's underneath it. I was just in the sensation. And what I know about myself, because I remember after my mother died, that I had this really heavy feeling in my chest for a long time while I was grieving for the loss of my mother. And it felt like an elephant was sitting on my chest, like a lot of pressure. So when I felt that feeling in my chest, I know enough about my own pattern of emotions and where I feel them because I've done enough inquiry that I was like, oh, this is heavy and it's in my chest. And then I, I know that's grief for me. Now, different people feel grief in different places in their body. They feel anxiety in different places in their body. They feel um, fear. They feel sadness. People have a, a profile of where they feel emotions. And the reason we call them feelings is because they're sensations. We feel them. We feel them. And then we put a label on them and we tell a story about them. But what's really important is to be able to name the feelings. And then something I'm sure you guys have talked about. It's like, how do you soothe yourself when you're going through a feeling, a difficult feeling? How do you settle yourself down? So there's a variety of things that we don't have time to go into them, but I'm sure that you can reference other podcasts that you've talked about with people. How do you self-soothe? How do you settle yourself down? Yeah, we have, we've talked about that quite a bit just because I think that's one thing that we, we do try to do on here is, is, is provide some tools and tips for people to, because it's, you know, you always hear of these things, but, you know, very rarely do you hear of, okay, well, how do I, how do I get to that point? You know, how do I accomplish this? Um, Something that you just said, uh, it it really struck me. It was uh, the, the whole, the whole fear and and grieving, like how, I I don't even know how I, how I can, how I can put this. Um, Is there a way to, is, let me say this, is it best to feel that feeling, maybe identify it as grief and then to not put a label on it, maybe to not even like you, you, you can kind of accept it as this is what I think it is, but instead maybe like, don't judge it or label it. Does, does judging or label it, make it worse. That would be a better, you know, that's, That's an interesting something to think about, because I think that there are times when just feeling a feeling or a sensation, and then just what's interesting about these things is they come in waves. So if we can just breathe into them instead of resisting them or trying to discharge them quickly through all the ways that we do in life that makes life worse. 
um, just to like breathe into it. I actually think that movement is super important. And one of the things, you know, I think walking is highly underrated because it's, it's bilateral, you know, we're moving both sides of the body, both sides of the brain. My husband and I, we try to take a walk every day in COVID because this feeling of cabin fever, particularly in the winter, I don't care how cold it is. Last, last winter, I got us hats. We just bundle up and we go. And, you know, it really helps to, you know, get people out. I also think like in family life, what I recommend that the families do is they have dance breaks. You know, it's like find, especially if you have kids, like get yourself a playlist and get everybody like just five minutes of wild dancing, take a dance break. Um, when we were raising, we, we have the one child, Tom and I, we have Tommy and, and Tom has a couple of girls from his previous marriage who were grown when we got married and um, we're almost grown, not totally, but almost. And um, <laughs> our son will say that he has memories of us tangoing up and down the hall past the kitchen door because we just find that, you know, like, again, as I said, if I just grab him and start dancing with him in the kitchen, it'll shift his state. If he's anxious and I start dancing with him, he's better. I love um, that when you said that. I, that is, that is, I, I love it. I think that is huge because especially for Tom, and let me say, Tom, shout out to Tom, kudos to you because we're kind of talking about him and he's not here and, and uh, I'm with you, Tom. So he'll hear so, this. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but yeah, but like, cause so say if Tom, we'll just use that, him as an example. If he's in that state, he doesn't realize it. And, and you realize it and you go and you dance or, wh- or whatever. If he does the vice versa to you, that is, that is like, to me, it's one of the best things you can do for your partner. Yeah. I think that is huge. And it just, it, it dissolves, it, it, it like puts out the fire and, in, and it, it also does, you know, it probably gives you more oxytocin. It creates more joy. And it's like, it's what a, what a way to do it. That is awesome. I just got to say that that is awesome. So, and, and to have your son, to have those memories of all you guys were waltzing, like, and then maybe someday he could meet a woman and, and do that with her or, and, and, and to have that kind of that positive, again, that positive memory it, as, as something that is so it's so it's, it's priceless. You can't put a price on that. Yeah. Yeah. And in family life, it's super important. I'm, yeah. I'm just, as we're talking, I'm remembering we all got together for Christmas. And one of the things that was so important for Tommy, as we we're kind of getting, you know, ready to go back home, everybody, uh, he's going to fly to LA. We were going to drive back to little rock where I am. And um, he said, okay, family hug. And it's so interesting because I remember all the family, the three, you know, the, the Wakefield team where we would just put our arms, the three of us around each other. And when he was little, he used to bury himself in between Tom and I, we would all just be hugging. And now he's, when we hug, his chin rests on my head. <laughs> we still do the family hug. So I'm burying myself in with these two tall guys. And, you know, and it's just, you know, it's, and it's, it was in, he's the one who wanted it. He wanted that because he's grown up with these kinds of things. And he knows that we are a team and, you know, we're there for each other. And um, I like the I like the team aspect, because actually, believe it or not, we kind of call each other team Foley around my house. And it's great. And it's and it. I think you need that kind of thing. And I love the dance breaks. And I we talk about walking all the time. I actually walk 
like walking has become this is it's it was something that I did as a kid because I had to because we didn't have a car. But you didn't realize how much that actually was a positive. It was good for keeping weight off. It was good for dispersing energy. It was just it was good to, because you always knew you had mobility mm-hmm. and mobility is super important, I think. And I think sometimes we do get caught up in our own patterns and and our own stories. And we, we forget that we always have the mobility to move if we're fortunate enough to have that mobility. So thank you very much for sharing. That's so cool. Yeah. So cool. And if it's at all possible to, to walk in nature, uh, I was just thinking this morning about something that was, that uh, it was a, a phrase that was coined by, um, oh gosh, what's the guy's name? It's uh, Richard Liu. He, he coined the term nature deficit disorder, nature deficit disorder. And it's, it, it's, it really has to do with how calming and soothing, just getting into any kind of nature. Even if you can just like, if you were in New York city, if you can just go to where there's a fountain, cause they've got, you know, our little, you know, neighborhood park and just sit on a bench and watch the pigeons or, you know, so part of, you know, what's so great about walking also outdoors is just even the cyclical nature of the seasons, which is part of what, you know, you get, you guys are talking about um, the, the, again, the struggle with depression and w- seasons are actually so important because there are times in our life when we really need to get quiet, when we need to go in. And then there's summertime. Uh, I worked years ago in, in Sweden and they have this enormous dark period during the winter. And everybody's just kind of holed up inside their houses. It's dark and cold. And when the summer comes, nobody sleeps because, you know, it's like summer. And they just want to be out celebrating. And so they think everybody gets about four hours of sleep for the whole summer. And then they sleep during the winter. I guess they hibernate like bears. Like bears. Yeah. But we, we really do. I mean, the cyclical nature of the seasons where the spring is about new birth and the summer is about, you know, really the fruition of things growing and celebrating and um, being outdoors. And then the fall where we, we harvest and then we let go. The leaves are all about letting go. And then the winter where it's kind of a fallow time where we have to reflect and we're more quiet and we stay by the fire and we sleep more and, you know, and, and we have those seasons of our lives. We have our seasons that seem barren and we have seasons when we have to let go like the leaves. We have seasons when we have a big harvest of wonderful things in our life. We have seasons when spring, when new things are coming into being. And our connection with nature is so important in just the cyclical nature of life. And one thing I will say about like what we're going through right now with COVID is I think America is afraid of the dark. I think we are afraid of the dark. We're afraid of seasons where things are difficult. And where we've got to, you know, kind of like, what is the lesson of what we're learning? I think one of the lessons that we're learning is that we're not just individual units, that we are living in a worldwide web. That we really you know, are. We really what are. What we do impacts each other. And we've got to, we, we can't, this individualistic thing that we have, it's swung too wide to the pendulum. It's too wide. And it's not just... Um, it's not just one party, but it's also, and again, I'm, I'm a Jungian oriented practitioner. So I'm really into individuation and us being individuals, 
but I'm really aware that we are individuated in connection with each other and what we do and who we are impacts. It impacts our relationships, our families, our communities. Well said. Yeah. So we are individuals. We're unique. And we're, that's important for us to discover our uniqueness. But part of that is to what is our gift to the world? What is our gift to the world? And how I, do we in community be more whole? I wonder, if, are we afraid? I, I know fear is a huge thing, but are we afraid of really realizing that we are greater? We, we were here, we're all here for a purpose. Like we kind of got into this off, off air about, religiosity, I I will call it because of the things that I personally believe. But I wonder if we're, we just become so afraid of figuring out that a lot of the things that we've been taught or told aren't necessarily the truth, or there's another way of thinking about them. And maybe like, and how our, how our, just our indoctrination into all of these systems throughout the years. And I'm not, I'm not trying to blame anything because like you said, we are, we are individuals, but we are part of a greater connected web, which I completely believe. And I believe that we are all affecting the thing immediately and exponentially. And we don't necessarily have the ability to, a lot of people aren't willing to do this kind of work. Mm -hmm. And I think that is essentially what I think we all need. So how do we get to that point of, of getting over our fear and can we get over our fear? Fear is a very powerful thing. It's very powerful. It's riveting. And a lot of things are sold by fear. Uh, I think that we're caught up in a lot of fear right now, a lot of anxiety. And unfortunately, I think it's mostly being, you know, it's being pumped up and promoted by the news media on every side uh, because fear is compelling. But I also think that there really is a groundswell. It's almost like an understream of people who are wanting to live from a different place and they're not as visible, but I meet them all the time. And I even, I even meet them in people who've never thought about these kinds of questions. So one of the things that happens is when we get into enough pain and enough loss, we have to actually start asking deeper questions. We're forced to ask deeper questions when we're in pain and loss. Part of what started me on, you know, my own journey of self-realization and human potential when I was in my 20s is because I did have such a difficult teenage time. I really struggled a lot in my teenage years and I started college and then I dropped out and then I, you know, I had a lot of difficulties in my late teens and early 20s. And I wanted to know, you know, like, how does one get peaceful? How does one get happy? How does one get whole? How does one have good relationships? You know, it's like, why does everything keep falling apart? Why can't I make things come together? So just, you know, when you're in enough pain, you start to ask different questions, but hopefully, um, I mean, I, th- I think people are ultimately in search of some form of solid ground or security. And one of the things that I try to convey to people, regardless of what your religious orientation is, is if you get quiet enough, there really is an inner compass. There is a still small voice within you and looking within you doesn't necessarily have to be terrifying for a lot of people. They're like, oh, my gosh, if I look in, I'm going to see awful things. But you can kind of titrate that you can do little little bits at a time of inner work and you can get accustomed to the rewards of inner work. Once you hit that turnaround where you were like, oh, I'm in less pain. 
oh, things are going better. Oh, that was hard to face. But now, wow, something's opened up. I have so much more energy now for my life and creativity when I used to just be struggling with how to get through the day. You start to get those rewards and you just, you need some help initially. Need the help of a good therapist or a good coach, or, you know, sometimes for some people, um, actually getting involved with the, the structure of a religious organization can be very helpful for them. But we need to be really careful that we're not just um, totally absorbing the stories and the, the values and the groupthink of organizations that we get involved with, because all organizations have shadow and light. All organizations have light sides and dark sides. And as soon as you realize that, then, I mean, I've gone through situations in my life where I really idealized certain groups and I was, then I discovered things about people in the group or the group or whatever. And I was so shattered because I thought, oh, this is such a wonderful thing. And then I bumped into something highly imperfect. And I've come to realize that my, it's kind of like looking, my projection of looking for an ideal parent out there. You know, as if there's an ideal father, an ideal mother, and that might be an organization or, or whatever. But that, you know, that I really, over my years of, of personal work and contemplative work and, and therapy, lots of therapy, have learned that I can really center in myself. And there's an interesting little door on the inside. Carl Jung used to call it the capital S self as opposed to the little s self. So the little s self is our ego identity. It's the stories we tell about ourselves. It's the formation of all our history and what we've come to believe that may or may not be true. But the capital S self is really that core. And it, that is the core where there's a little door into the transcendent. There's a door into universal truths and people have different names for these universal truths. Sometimes they get very attached to the names and the formulas. But really, you know, and you can call it meditation, contemplation, prayer, um, you know, journey work, <laughs> sweat lodge, you can call I, it whatever you want to call it. But the, the quietude, that calm core inside is really what we each need to seek. And I think that we are being asked to do that right now. It's like, it's traumatic what we're going through because our worldview is being shattered. And that's the definition of trauma when your worldview is shattered and suddenly you feel incredibly unsafe, that's what trauma is. And so when we experience our world being shattered, we've got to get really quiet and start to settle in and find those, that incredible storehouse of inner resource that we all have. And when you find that, that you find, you know, that pantry full of inner resource then you start to really get calm and you start to get confident in your life and you can face things with more equanimity. And that's, that's the path for me, at least that's my perspective. Uh, that oh, that's, is, that is awesome. Yeah. The journey path is just like, that is, that's such a cool thing. Cause I, I can, that metaphor like stands. Yeah. Like you could take away that, you know, like you were saying with the seasons, they're reminders. So if for some of us that are in, you know, the winter cold, you know, darker month or whatever, you could sit with your thoughts and think. And, and I think the takeaway is you can change your thoughts. Yes. You know, you yes. can change your perception on these things and, you know, you can look into the mirror and not be scared. You can, you can look into the mirror and if you don't like what it is that you see, you can change it. 
-hmm. You know, I think whatever situation you're in, you can better it. One of the things that I, I find with the people that I've worked with over the years is change is often incremental. And it's, if you're not, that's why it's kind of good to be with a therapist because the therapist sometimes will say to you, I remember what you were like two years ago and you have made so much improvement. You are so different. But often when we're doing that personal work, it's so incremental. I talk about this with couples, you know, they come and they say, we're still fighting. And I, and I'll say, so how long did it take for you to recover? How long did the fight last? So maybe, you know, they used to get into a big fight and then they wouldn't talk to each other for a week. But now they get into a fight and they say halfway through, let's not do this. Let's, let's do something different. Let's like quiet down and figure out what's going on with us. And so they, they part, they get calm and, you know, the next day they get back and have a conversation and that's, about it. That's growth. That's, yeah, that's tremendous gross. growth. Yeah. And I think there's maybe people don't realize, like you said, it's incrementally, people don't realize that, you know, I'm going to a therapist and she's worked with me and it's like, well, yeah, well, you know, and, and that image of, well, you know, it's been three months, we should be able to do this. You know, we should be able to, you know, this is where we should be. It's like, no, like one, one step at a time, one day at a time. And if it's one hour at a time, then it's one hour at a time. That's so true. And, you know, these patterns that we're in, they've taken us a lifetime to develop. And sometimes we're actually inheriting patterns from our parents and our parents' parents. So, you know, there is an intergenerational thing that goes on in terms of like the ethos, the environment that we grow up with and what we absorb. And, and so it can take, it can take a while to turn these things around, but that's what, again, not to get too scientific, but neuroplasticity, it means that you can rewire your brain. And the first time you have a different kind of an experience, it's like one little neuron. And then you have it again, announced 10 neurons, and then it's a hundred and then it's a thousand. And then, you know, it keeps growing exponentially. And when it's, it's like, I like the, the, the metaphor of the train track, it's kind of like an experience happens. And then there's a switching mechanism. And we used to go this way to the left off into, you know, yelling, screaming, crying, whatever we did, withdrawing, breaking up, you know, quitting jobs, whatever we did. And now we're going to go off to the right. And in the right, we go head off down this track and we ask ourselves, hmm, I wonder what's going on with me. How can I self-soothe? Maybe I'm projecting something. Maybe I should find out what this person's intentions were. Uh, maybe I'm in an old story from when I was 10 years old. So, you know, that, that, that fork in the road is something that, you know, we learn to take a different track. Wow. Nicely said. Wow. I love it. Wow. I love it. I actually, I wanted to ask this because I have a little bit of confusion around this and, and because you are trained in the Jungian way, um, I wanted to know, and maybe some of our listeners are more adver more versed at this than I am. What exactly is the shadow? Is it the stories? Is it, is it the self that we created from these stories? I've, I'm always been a little bit confused by his, by his view of the shadow, because I was thinking the shadow was, was something maybe different than. Tell me a little bit about what you thought, because this is such an important question and I definitely will answer it. What did you think? Well, I, from what I've read and I'm not very versed on young because there's so much depthness he's to it. Deep. Yeah. <laughs> he's pretty deep. And, and I, I just always thought that the shadow was those parts of us that we were afraid to look at, afraid to accept, and the stories that come with those. And 
that the shadow is is something to be embraced um, because we have to embrace our shadow because those are the stories that actually have created the person that we've become. And then the only way that we can overcome the person we've become is to, is to, is to look at that person and to do the self-work. Confront it. Yeah. So there's some truth in what you're saying uh, in that usually the shadows, I'm going to talk from a purely Jungian perspective in the purest form, the shadow is unconscious. It's something that we have either disowned so much that we're no longer aware of it, or it's, I I like to talk about it as the things that lie in the seedbed of the psyche. This is another dimension. It's really important. We have possibilities in the seedbed of the psyche that have yet to be developed. They haven't been watered and cultivated. So shadow can also be bright shadow. And we tend to project bright shadow onto the people we idealize. And, and we project onto them and then we think, oh, that's so awesome how they can, you know, they're so successful or they're so gracious or they're so patient or they're so talented and creative. And, and there's along with that is almost an assumption of I could never be that. And sometimes we'll even marry people who carry our bright shadow. Oh, that person is so brave and entrepreneurial, but I would never dare doing what it, you know, with them. I can actually have the adventure of being entrepreneurial um, or, you know, it's whatever it is. And um, what it is, is an uncultivated seed in our own psyche that we can develop. So when we idealize movie stars and sports figures and things of that sort, they're carrying something of the archetype of the hero or the tremendously creative person that lives in us, but is uncultivated. So that's bright shadow. Now, if we think about negative shadow, dark shadow, these are the things that we disown. And yes, they're things that we typically don't like about ourselves, or they could be things that our families didn't like about us. So let's say that you were growing up in a family of atheists. And I actually write about this in Negotiating the Inner Peace Treaty. You know, there's this little mystic who's growing up in a family of atheists. And every time she talks about something transcendent, her mother's like, get rid of this, shut that stuff down. We don't want to hear about that in this house. We don't do that stuff. And so she grows up, you know, kind of hiding her curiosity about spirituality. She she puts books in her locker at school because she wants to read about world spiritual views and, but she doesn't want to take it home because her mother will get mad. And so that's, you know, that is something that she could have disowned. She could have said, I have an innate curiosity about the transcendent, but I just won't pay any attention to it because it doesn't belong in this family. And then that would have fallen into shadow. In this particular instance, she just kind of hid it from her mother. She hid that dimension of herself. But that's, you know, so we we disown things. Uh, In some families, there are certain emotions that are not allowed. That emotion can even be happiness. You know, you are way too happy. Life is too hard. I don't want to see all that joy jumping around. Just cut that out. So we disown our joy and then the joy falls into shadow and people who disown their joy and it falls into shadow can face a lifetime of depression. So likewise, in some families, anxiety is not allowed. We're a highly successful family. You know, we're confident about everything we do. Anxiety is not allowed in this family. And so you've got a child who disowns their anxiety and then they grow up and they do things like they get involved with various substances and various things to soothe that anxiety because they're not allowed to face it. And, you know, because anxiety is actually, you know, feeling anxious occasionally is part of life. 
every time we grow, we feel a little bit anxious because we're growing into a different definition of ourselves. So we're, you know, the, the ground that we're standing on is shifting. So we're going to feel a little anxious. So, you know, there's that which we disown and deny falls into shadow. People can do a lot of this stuff around sexuality. I do a lot of work around this, around sexuality. It's like, what are we disowning about sexuality that's, that's gone into shadow and has become this feral animal and is now like jumping out and doing things in our lives that are kind of random or things that we don't really, that aren't really feeding us, um, that are hurting our relationships, breaking agreements, things of that sort. But it's like, so let's take a deeper look at like, what is the longing? What is this energy really about that's been disowned and sent into shadow? Um, our instinctual, when people send the, send the instinctual into shadow, they get into all sorts of trouble because we're still, we're in animal bodies. We're in animal bodies. So we have to learn, you know, as like cognizant human beings, how to manage the animal body. So, you know, shadow are things that are unconscious, undeveloped, disowned, and doing shadow work, Carl Jung used to say, there's gold in the shadow. There's gold in the shadow. We have to discover what the gold is. So often, years ago, I had a therapist. He had a wonderful metaphor. Um, I was working with him and I said, well, I'm just, I just don't want to talk about that. I don't want to think about that. He said, well, that's fine, Chelsea, but here's that, how that is. It's kind of like putting your stapler in your tape in a particular drawer in your desk and then nailing the drawer shut. And you can say to yourself, I can work without staplers and tape. I don't need staplers and tape, but your life will be a lot more difficult. You know, so if you open the door and you figure out what else is in the drawer with the staplers and the tape, then, you, then you've got some tools in addition to whatever that stuff was. And that can be faced. And part of my job here is to help you face that stuff. So again, you know, we can cut parts of ourselves off, but, you know, amputate parts of ourselves, but then we're, you know, without arms, legs, hands, et cetera. So wow. that, to me, that's more about shadow. I didn't realize the, uh, the the light side of the shadow. I always, I always, the shadow to me was this alter ego that you know was it was it was its own entity, but it was it was associated with the darkness and and mostly negative. So that was uh, that was a treat. Thank you for that. Yeah, and the darkness and the negative. Again, if we really trust that there's something in there, something creative, some element of that that needs to be reintegrated into the life that will actually make the life more whole and more full. But, you know, usually that kind of work needs to be facilitated by somebody who can hold what looks kind of ugly mm -hmm. and either to restory it or to redirect it into a creative, integrative outlet rather than a destructive outlet. Because again, you know, even people, I, part of, people who become deeply involved in drugs is they're, they're looking for the transcendent. They're looking to ease the pain. Um, and drugs temporarily will take you into transcendence. It's just that, you know, years ago, I asked one of the people I was working with, one of my therapists, how do I reach those states of transcendence without a substance? How do I, how do I actually experience that joy, that peace, that wonder, that awe, without a substance. So, you know, that's, that's the thing. Wow. Wow. Thank you very it? much well, for sharing that. Well, did you get an answer? Yes. The if answer, this, this was a really lovely woman with that I worked with for a while. She was actually a spiritual director and she taught me how to be still and go in 
And she would sit with me and we would meditate together. And she taught me how to find the quiet center. And, and in finding the quiet center, it began to be kind of like in my book, Negotiating the Inner Peace Three Day, I talk about the calm core. And so I began to learn that there was a place within me that I could go that was quiet and had wisdom that was good and new things. And that could lead me in directions that were going to make my life, bring my life into, into fruition. So it, you know, we need people to help us and guide us. She was a, essentially a meditation teacher. So she was very helpful. Her name was Bernice and I, she was very dear to me. That is awesome. Wow. Well, thank, thank you. you for, yeah. Thank you for helping us. Yeah. This. Thank this you is, for helping us. It's so great to be with you guys. Yeah. This we're gonna, great. I wanted to ask Timmy if there was anything else he wanted to add before we got into the lightning round. <laughs> Maybe just that you'll come back someday because the, like the, the wealth of knowledge that you have, this was like, for me, this was awesome. Like I'm just listening and learning and not, not even worrying about if we're putting this out, I'm just, I'm getting so much from this, this conversation. So thank I'd you. I'd be happy to come back. Oh, awesome. You actually, one of the things that you stated literally sent off an insight into me that I had to sit here for a second and just take <laughs> in just because like, that's the one good thing about being able to do this. We're not just trying to help others feel less alone. Like they're not struggling by themselves, but we actually gain so much out of all these conversations. What and was it? It, I, it? it had something to do with an insight about me when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, I, I, when I listened back to this and, and I'm sure I'll feel it again, I just started getting like, unfortunately it, I held it for a couple of seconds. And then I started thinking about time and everything else. It mm-hmm. kind of got me out of the place. Um, thank you so much, Chelsea. We appreciate so much the busy schedule that you have and taking the time out to talk to us. And we always finish up the podcast with three questions. And the middle question that I ask has changed recently. And I'm curious to ask you this when we get to it, but it's a different question than we normally ask. But Tim, I'll let you start, buddy. Chelsea, do you have a favorite or a least favorite word? I think my favorite word is growth. And I think my least favorite word is impossible. I like it. Wow. That's the first for, that's the first for both impossible. Both of them, I think. Yeah. Is grow, I think growth might be the first, isn't it? Or no? Yeah, it might be the first. Cause that's the first time any, I, that's the kind of struck me is that cause amazingly for all the people we've talked to talk to from all these different parts. It's amazing that nobody has said growth. And I kind of yeah. found that for you that I thought that that was, I have to ask you this, cause this is not the next question, but are, do you, are you familiar with Jim Rohn? The, I am. Okay, I've I, seen him speak. Oh, you have. Cause oh, wow. I, I, I have. When you talked about the seasons of your life and things. That's all I kept hearing. Cause I, mm-hmm. I've become a student of his over the re- over recent years. And I have a bunch of his audio programs on my phone and I just love the way he talked and just mm-hmm. how he cap- captured uh, emotion and, and how he described things and just how he was able to put words and actions together. And he was a I, big I, possibility, big, big possibility guy. Yes, he was. Absolutely. And he had another thing that actually has really helped me over the years. And I just thought of it recently. He was saying, if there's something that you want, ask, 
he used to say that ask that's so, my hardest that's the biggest obstacle that i have i'm afraid to ask i'm afraid to hear no sometimes mm-hmm. and i'm a af- and i don't know why that happened but but it has but i'm working on that so that's okay so that leads us to the next question which has really changed and just become this uh jazz like question because i like to improvise this but um i want to know what is your definition of courage Hmm. Courage. My definition of courage is where you reach for something because what you're reaching for is more important than the fear that you feel. So you're reaching for, there's like some sort of a something on the other side of your fear and you're reaching for that. And it's more important than the fear you feel. To me, that's courage. And I also think courage is like going to the gym. I think you build it <laughs> as you exercise it. I love wow. it. Wow. 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 Thank you so much for that. Wow. That was worth the that's price it. of admission right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was just, that's a zinger, man. That's a, that'll smack you in the face. So the last question, if there was something that you could do or that you would like to see done for mental health as a whole without any kind of restraint, what would it be? I would really, really like to disseminate more information about to have positive, fulfilling, meaningful relationships, because I think that we grow in relationship. And I think that we don't have a lot of role models. And I think this would change the world. May, can I ask, I wanted to kind of piggyback on that because you kind of got me thinking about something. Is this possible of why we're having such a hard time right now in this world, trusting science and trusting others? Do you think that our our relation to relationship has been detrimentally affected by, by just the goings on? I know that's a multi-layered question. And it could probably be an hour in itself. But well, it just yes. kind of led me, it kind of just led me to that. Cause I, you know, you wonder why we don't trust each other. We don't trust what we're told. We're not, you know what I mean? So I'm kind of curious if there's a, if there's a, you know, synopsis of that. <laughs> All right. So here's, here's my, my briefest possible answer about something we could definitely talk about for an hour is that particularly in the West, we're extremely head oriented. We're interested in information, in proof in concrete things that which, you know, but we don't think a lot about heart. So the, somebody once said that the journey, the longest journey in the world is between the head and the heart. And to the degree that we're not consulting our hearts, we are going to get stuck in arguing over thoughts about information and whether information is true or false, but it's like, what's the relevance of the information if it's not linked into community and relationship. So that's my very brief response to that. Wow. Yeah. That I, I don't want to go any deeper into it because we could sit here for another hour. Cause it, <laughs> that was so, that was so awesome. Cause there's so many, so many layers to that. Um, Chelsea, thank you so much for taking time and, and connecting with us. Uh, it's been amazing to have you on and you have an open invitation after the book comes out. Because the third book is not out yet. It's, is, no, it's out. It's okay, out. it is it, out. Okay, yeah, it came out in the summer. So okay, get a hold of it, and we can talk. Oh about yeah, we it. will. We definitely and will. If, if your listeners have questions about the book, 
uh, have them send them in to you and then we'll talk to the questions. Awesome. Let's do it. Let's do it. You I heard it here. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Love Will's going to put a bunch of links for the books and all your stuff uh, along with the episode. Uh, people can, how they can look you up because I'll tell you for anyone listening, if they want to, uh, you know, better uh, relationship, this is the woman to speak to. And this is the woman to uh, check out, you know, for sure. This is, this is great stuff. Thank you. Well, well, yeah, I really you. enjoyed the morning with you too. And I look forward to a future conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chelsea. May you have Thank a great you. day. May the okay. force be with you. All right, you too. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye. Bye. Be well. Be safe. Be a, a- bo- bo-